is on page 573 of our uh, pew Bibles there. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, how good we are, good it is to be in your house today and uh, to be in the midst of all these people in the festive time of the year. And the festive time of the year is about the birth of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, we rejoice in sad news this morning, really, that our good friend is in glory. And uh, we just thank you, Lord, that this world is not our home, that heaven is our native place. And, Lord, we just ask that uh, as your word is read and as it is expounded by Adam, that you would bless it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be starting on verse 2, and then we'll go down to verse uh, 6, I guess. Uh, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Then verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Too late. We're continuing our series through Advent called The Word Became Flesh, and this series is designed to answer the question, why should we read our Bibles? Why should we read our Bibles? I recently read a book about the Bible, and the book was pretty good, but there was a chapter that was attempting to answer this question, why should we read our Bibles? And the answer that this author gave was something to do with laziness, that uh, we ought to be better Christians and read the Bible more. And I got to be honest with you that that answer just doesn't feel very inspiring to me. (laughs) Maybe when I was younger... Uh, I would have been motivated by, hey, stop being such a lazy person. You've got to be a better Christian. And this guy next to you reads the Bible more than you do, but that just doesn't float my boat anymore. I think it is a little degrading to put the Bible in the same category as dieting and exercise. I really ought to lose 10 pounds. I know that. And I ought to read the Bible more. In fact, I could get a twofer on my moralistic to-do list and read the Bible while I'm on the treadmill. It would be perfect. But no, the Bible is not like low-fat food. The Bible is not like low-calorie, low-joy food. Um, That's true, isn't it? Here come the holidays. I was thinking, you know how they say uh, love covers a multitude of sins. That's a Bible Bible verse, and I think uh, butter works like that too. (laughs) It does. If you're cooking... And you don't really know what you're doing, you better have some heavy cream and some butter going on. You'll be all right. Anyway. So Jeremiah is talking to the Lord. And in Jeremiah 15, 16, he says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. See, the Bible isn't like broccoli or low-calorie this or that. We read the Bible. Long-term throughout our lives, not because we've figured out that we've got to grit our teeth and, and do it, but because we see the glory of it. 
We see the glory of the word of God. It is living and active, sharper than two, and a two-edged sword. There is nothing like this in terms of power on the planet. Not a nuclear bomb, not even just an imaginary superhero is as powerful as the word of God. Thomas Chalmers, he was a Puritan a few hundred years ago, and he wrote about what he called the expulsive power of a new affection. The, the expulsive power of a new affection. Let's say that I love something that's worthless. Uh, and Char- Chalmers would say that our worthless habits don't go away by what he calls the mere force of mental determination. They do for a while, but it doesn't stick. We don't get rid of bad, worthless habit, worthless habit by mere force of mental determination. Most of us are just not good at long-term w- willpower. So Chalmers says, what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Now, the reason that we don't read the Bible is because we love other stuff more, like sleep. Sleep is awesome. And I'll admit that sleep is awesome. So if you want to get me to read the Bible, don't say, look, get up early and drudge through this ancient bit of of text. That's not a, a way to make that stick in my life. The reason Uh, that I will get up is because my heart has been impacted by the glorious, powerful word of God. The only way to grab a person's heart long-term is to show us something more glorious than whatever the thing is that we love more now. And that's the purpose of this sermon series. The word has glory and power to draw us in on its own power, not with any kind of moralistic pressure Job in chapter 23, he was defending himself and he said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Wow. I mean, that is somebody who really understands the word of God, who has seen the word of God and its glory. So let's work on seeing the glory of God here this morning. You can join me in 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22, I'm going to be looking at just a couple of little paragraphs of 2 Samuel 22, but this is the last psalm of David. He's basically on his deathbed. This is his end-of-life reflection on how he managed to get through this life. And David committed some of the most famous sins in, in human history, some of the most famous sins in the Bible, certainly. And, uh, and, so, but, and yet, he stuck with the Lord. And he kept following the Lord and he kept writing psalms like this. And so at the end of his life, he's an old man and he's probably surrounded by his family. And I can imagine him kind of reading this psalm to his family on his deathbed. So it's a very important psalm. It's not the psalm of a young man, but it's the psalm of an old man who has learned how to walk with God through hard times, through good times, uh, through repentant times, through times of comfort and hope. And so on. So what I'd like to do is look at verses 21 to 31. I'm going to read them top to bottom here. And then I'm going to draw out four basic ideas that come out of this passage. Beginning in verse 21 of 2 Samuel 22. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And from his statutes, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. 
For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Well, one thing that David says in this passage, and again, I'm going to draw out four things from this passage, and there's more here. It's just I had to cut a bunch because nobody wants to stay here till two or three o'clock today. But this is a really powerful section of Scripture. I'm going to draw out four things that are very important to this older godly man that all through the rest of Scripture, people look back on and say, now that guy was a godly man. And so let's look at what was really important to him. And one of the things that was important to him was watching himself. In verse 24, he says, I kept myself from guilt. And that word kept in Hebrew is shamar, which means to watch over or to guard. So David watched over himself. He was aware of his heart. He, it was almost like looking at himself from another place and seeing himself. He had self-awareness. He was watching over himself. Now, why is this important? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, since we are sinners, we often stray from God's ways. And so we have to study our hearts. What are the areas of my heart where I'm likely to kind of come off the tracks? Where, uh, what are those times uh, of the day or those times of the week or those situations in life where I'm very likely to forget about God and to do things that are foolish? We've got to study ourselves. We need to know ourselves. We each have unique approaches to deceitfulness. And this is important. Mark 7 says, from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a a person. So David was self-aware. He followed the advice of Moses in Deuteronomy 4, 9. Moses said, take care and keep Same word there, shamar, keep your soul diligently, watch over your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So David left a legacy of this kind of behavior. His own son in Proverbs 16 wrote, the highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards, same word, shamar, whoever guards his way preserves his life. So this is one thing that comes out of this passage is David said, look, I know myself and you guys know me pretty well too. And I'm a sinner and I know that. So I got to watch over my heart. I got to see where those areas are where I'm likely to be kind of weird or I'm able to tweak out or something like that. And I need to uh, pay attention to myself and be aware of myself. The next thing that he says is that uh, because he's uh, watching over himself, he avoids a lot of trouble. He's avoiding foolishness. That's the second thing I want to draw out here. In verse 23, he says, from his statutes, I did not turn aside. In verse 22, he says, I have not wickedly departed from my God. Now that might sound like a stretch because we know what David did. He committed adultery. He murdered a guy. He lied for a while about it. So how can he say, verse 24, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. How can he say that? You can imagine him laying there on his deathbed, surrounded by his family and his grandkids. And David is like, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And you can imagine all of his kids saying, whatever, dad. We know what actually happened, but no, that's not what he means here. There are two things that make the statement true. Atonement and integrity. 
First of all, atonement. He was guilty. David knew all about guilt. Read Psalm 51. He wrote it right after he committed adultery and had been responsible for the death of that lady's husband, Uriah. And he wrote Psalm 51. It's a wonderful psalm to go to when we commit the really big kinds of sins. And we we need to go through an extra long and slow repentance process. Uh, Psalm 51 is, is brilliant for us because David just worded a, a, a repentance moment, worded his confession so eloquently, and he guides us through the process. So he's not saying that he never sinned. He understood that when he sinned, talks with the Lord, he goes to the Lord, he sits there and cranks out Psalm 51, and then you remember what he did in the text is he got up, he washed his face, and he ate a meal. Because Psalm 51 works. And like I said earlier in our service, confession really does work. The atonement really does work that God does use substitutionary death in order to clean us from our sins so that we can be back in right standing with God. So he was guilty, but then he repented, and therefore he's not guilty anymore because atonement cleans the guilt. The gospel really does work to clean our guilt. There are a couple of things here that make the statement true, atonement and also integrity. You see, David was a really good man all through his life. The gospel works and a life of integrity is important david was not a sinless man but he was a reliable solid god-loving man and when he sinned he repented nathan came and confronted him and said you are the man one of the most famous words in the bible is you are that man and david realizes i have sinned and he repents he picks himself up he learns from it and he got on with writing his psalms and pursuing god and leading the country like a righteous king David understood atonement, and David was a man of integrity, and the result was that his life avoided a lot of stupid stuff. He could have lost the throne like Saul had done. Saul was fearful, didn't trust God, which led to all kinds of weird things that he did in his life, small sins that snowballed, and eventually God took the throne from him. That didn't happen to David because he learned from his mistakes. He kept pursuing God. He knew how to confess his sin. David was no stranger to scary, heartbreaking things, but he kept moving toward God through it all, and that is called integrity. He was the one who wrote, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. He understands what it means to walk with God. It's not a recipe for perfection. That's not possible until Jesus Christ comes back and removes our sin nature. It's not a recipe for perfection, but for integrity he had a lifelong paying attention to what the bible says and he conformed his life to it now how is that possible and that leads us to the third thing here i'd like to draw out he's watching over himself he knows his weaknesses and temptations he tries hard to make wise choices and to conform his life to that and it is possible because of the power of the word of god the power of the word of God, 2 Samuel 2, 20, uh, 22, 23, all his rules were before me. You see, see that right in the middle of the paragraph there, all his rules were before me. And that is the heart of David's Psalms, the main emphasis of David's life. God's rules were before me. And he's talking about the Bible. He's talking about God's word. He's saying, as I look back on my life, the only reason I'm laying here with a with a blessed life, with God having blessed my life, is because my nose was always in God's word. Verse 29, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Verse 33, this God is my strong refuge and has made my way 
blameless. You see, the Bible is the greatest power on earth. It is the only living book, and it makes a life of righteousness possible. Nothing saves us or heals us or corrects us like the words in this book. Satan would like you to think that this is just a dry, old, antiquated thing. Uh, And if you do read the Bible, then Satan wants you to do it like a boring discipline, like a meal replacement shake (laughs) when you would rather have a ribeye. But the word of God has this ridiculous power. The word of God clears our minds so that we can understand what's true and live what's true and avoid a life filled with dumb choices and the pain that comes from dumb choices. Jeremiah 23, 29, God says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Isaiah 55, 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So three things here so far that we're drawing out of this beautiful last psalm of David. And the fourth one here is that David recognizes that he has had great blessings in his life that come from the life that he's just described. Great blessings from God. David says more here about the impact of following God. Verse 26, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. It's important to spell haughty correctly there. David, David wants us to see that his experience of following God was way more than just a better lifestyle. He is not arguing that, look, if you just follow the word of God, it's a better way to live. Let me give you an example of that. The Bible is not just an ethical code for living a good life. This is from Proverbs 6. And uh, the proverb says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, you could read that passage. In fact, any unbelieving person could read that passage and conclude, yeah, that's true. It is better to work hard and save for a rainy day. And that is true. Any non-Christian can benefit from that advice. But the Christian experiences way more. We're reading the word of God and we're living under the word of God as an expression of worship. And God sees that and God blesses that. And the reverse is also true in verse 27. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. God portrays himself as being against those who reject him. It is probably hard to overstate what it means that God is rooting for us and blessing us when we follow his ways. And we're not talking about material blessings, although that sometimes happens. But what I'm talking about is a serious soul blessing, Uh, the joy, the peace, the comfort, the hope, the compassion and the zeal that God lavishly gives to people who follow in his ways. 
How can we exaggerate how awesome that is to have God behind the scenes showering us with these kinds of blessings? Romans 8.31, Paul says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, this is why Christians love the word of God. It's not because it's just coherent and sensible. It's, not, it's, because, it's because the word of God connects us intimately with our maker, whom we want more than anything else to know and to see. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and form foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So four things that come out of this psalm, and that is David watched himself. He knew himself. He was self-aware. He was teachable. He was humble. He knew his heart. Second thing is that he acted with wisdom, and as a result, he didn't do a lot of those stupid things that bring pain into our lives. The third thing is he realized it was all possible because he kept the word of God in front of his nose all the time. And then finally, he's saying, look, the result of this life is I'm laying here, an old man, and I'm looking back on my life. God has been so good. God has just blessed me. Psalm 119, verse 131. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. You see, this is not a person that says, I really ought to be a good Christian and get up at a certain time and do my devotional. No, this is a guy who's just saying, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Now, during this sermon series, we're trying also to include very, very practical help. This series is designed to be intensely practical. So what I'd like to do here for a minute is introduce you to something called the monthly process. Um, since God's word is so important, I'd like to introduce you in each one of these sermons to different ways to study the Bible. And today is called the monthly process. One of the reasons that people don't study the Bible is because it's very intimidating. Now, it's a big book, and a lot of it was written to stuff that happened thousands of years ago. So it helps to have resources and tools for understanding it. So we've done that through each one of these sermons. And today, we're dealing with the monthly process, which is aimed at comprehension. God is communicating something in this text. Every word of this text, every paragraph of this text, God is communicating something to us. And we want to understand what he intends to say. It's very important that we don't go to the Bible, half listen. It, he, there's a word in there that reminds us of something else. And then we start to, oh, I know what this is about. And we go on with whatever thought we had when we originally came to the text. It's very important that we listen and pay attention to what God is communicating so that we are hearing him accurately. Comprehension uh, is very important in Bible study. And I believe that comprehension requires four basic behaviors. So in a monthly process, this would be divided into four different weeks. And the first would be to read and reread the Bible. The second is to inspect. The third week is to summarize. And the fourth is to reflect. And let's discuss these each one by one. What I'd recommend that you do and consider doing this in the month of January is uh, begin the first week of the month 
by identifying a pretty big section of the Bible, something that takes somewhere around seven to ten minutes to read. So we're looking at a book like Philippians or Colossians, or we're looking at maybe a third of a book like John's Gospel. Finding a section that takes about seven to ten minutes to read. And for an entire week, we read that whole section every day, seven times. Repetition is the habit of reading and rereading a big section of the Bible until we understand the basic flow of thought and the main ideas that are happening. Now, if I wanted to be a doctor, which I did when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a, a medical doctor. And if you, if, you, if you want to do that, you've got to study the human body and all the medicines and body parts that doctors need to use. You can't speed through that section of your studies. If you hope to actually heal people, if you hope to be helpful, uh, you can't speed through that. In fact, a lot of people are going to die if you speed through kind of that initial section of memorizing the bones and the veins and all of these different things. Big part of comprehension is taking time to read and reread the basics. And the monthly process takes a section of scripture and reads it every day for a week. And by reading a large section over and over, we start to understand what's going on because we've read it multiple times. It starts to feel familiar, and that's the goal here, is familiarity. God's word starts to sink deep into our hearts and minds so that we begin to remember it throughout the day. You remember what God said to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. So repetition is important for comprehension. The second week of the month is called inspection. And during that period, what we're doing is we're looking for, the. we've got a big section of scripture that we're dealing with, and we need to break it into its different parts. So if we're dealing with a New Testament epistle like Philippians, then that'll sometimes be the paragraph divisions or the chapter divisions. That's not always the case, but it usually is. And within each one of those sections, last week we discussed the definition of a discourse. Within each discourse or paragraph or whatever it may be, we're going to look for key words and we're going to look for key phrases. And you might be underlining or highlighting or circling or you might print out the text from the computer, uh, maybe a software program or somewhere online. Print out the whole text that you're looking at. You can mark it up as much as you want. However, However you do it, whatever your personality is, what you're doing within each section, within each discourse, each paragraph, is you're identifying the key words and the key phrases, and that also helps with comprehension. So that when we come to week three, the summarization point, we can write good summaries about what we've read. Week three is summarization, and that's when we write down in my own words the main emphasis of a discourse. So I've already broken the text into its pieces, It's not hard to do that. You can basically see a coherent collection of sentences, three, four sentences, whatever it may be. It's a coherent collection there. And I've identified my key words and my key phrases, and now I'm going to summarize it in my own words. And a summary needs to be right around 10 to 15 words, and it needs to be your own words and no metaphors. So we work really hard to boil it down to its basic essence. You can do that in the margin of your Bible, but I also recommend that you do the monthly process in some kind of a notebook and take each page of this notebook 
and go ahead and make it a, a nice-looking notebook if you want to, something that you'll be really proud of, that you're going to be working with a lot here. And take each page of this notebook for each paragraph or each discourse of the Bible and write your keywords there on the top and then write your summary there. Something very important happens in my brain when I examine an idea and write it in my own words. If I can explain it in my own words, and that means that I probably understand this idea. You know what this is like when a child asks a question like, how did Mary have a baby if she wasn't married yet? Or how is it that there's one God and yet there's three of them? How does that work? You know, a seven-year-old asks you that question. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Basic things. And we think, well, I know this. I've been in church for a long time, or I've thought about this. I read a whole book on this subject, or whatever it may be. And as we stumble for an answer, what's happening there is we're taking a very complex set of ideas, and we're putting it into our own simple words, and our understanding increases. Because we're taking a complex idea and putting it in simple form. That's an important part of comprehension, and that is true throughout all kinds of different areas of study, including Bible study. We've got to be able to explain what we've learned in our own words. And when we come to a discourse, a couple of words, we think, yeah, yeah, I know what that means. Okay, but read it again. What is he really saying? And we read it, read it, read it, and we think, I'm not actually sure what he's saying. So we pray, and we read it again, and we pray. And we work with key words and key phrases. And maybe you have a Bible that has notes on the bottom. And you work with it. And you work with it. And you work with it. And eventually you'll be able to write a summary of most discourses. You can't understand everything in the Bible. These are God's thoughts. But this is God communicating to us. He created us. And he knows how to communicate to us clearly. So most discourses in the Bible, you're going to be able to write a summary. Around 10, 15 words, your own words. Don't, don't make it more than 15 words or your summary has to be summarized so it wasn't a very good summary. And you remove all the metaphors from it, translate all your metaphors so that you're as clear as you can be about what God is saying in that passage. And then that brings you to the fourth week, reflection. And that has to do with personal application. There's no good memorizing a whole bunch of Bible trivia unless it has really sunk into our hearts and changed us. And so for that fourth week, you've done all the hard work You've done all the research that you need. You've, you know, you've sharpened your pencil about 35 times, and, and now you're ready to sit back and let the Holy Spirit do its work. And so as you come to each page of your little notebook with all of the key words and your summary, and you're reading through that Bible text again, you're asking God, what do you have to say to me? So maybe for the first couple days of the week, you just tackle the first section of what you were reading. Second day of the week, you tackle the next section. Go through it really slowly and just keep asking God, what do you have to say to me here? What do I need to learn here? What, if, what are you communicating to me through this text? God's word is designed to change us. It brings comfort and correction and hope and serious life change. And it connects us with a worthy mission. And it shows us how to love and how to live in this world. It shows us what's worthy of fear, what's worthy of real desire. And so as we go through this process of prayerful reflection and personal application, we're writing down almost like a journal what we think God is communicating to us. What does this mean? What is God saying to me from this text? But you see, we did a lot of work before we got to that stage. A lot of weird things happen in our lives when we jump to that fourth stage first without really paying attention to what God actually said in the text. So this is called the monthly process. I've taught this in a couple of different countries. 
and uh, to dozens of people, junior hires, high schoolers. It's a good process to follow. You don't have to do this for the rest of your life. Don't decide that, no, I'm going to do this until I die. This is maybe something to do for a few months of 2015. Start in January, February, March. Pick a section of the Bible that takes about seven to ten minutes to read. Again, the book of Philippians is a good place to start. Book of Colossians, or maybe you decide for three months you're going to divide the Gospel of John into three parts, and you're going to tackle it like that for three months. And just study it and see what God does in your heart through that time. Well, let me conclude with this. This is the Word of God. It has this unfathomable glory It's incredibly powerful. It's living and active. It's like fire. It's an amazing gift from God. When Jesus Christ came to earth, and we're celebrating this during Advent, these four Sundays before Christmas, and here we are at the third Sunday, and we're remembering that Jesus Christ came to earth. Then our second week of the series, we were looking at the prologue to John's gospel, John chapter 1, where we are told that Jesus was the Word who became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ was the walking, talking Word of God. Everything that He said lined up perfectly with what we have in here. Everything that He did throughout His life was a life that was shaped by the Word of God in perfect conformity to the Word of God. And you know, He calls us to do something very much like that, to also embody His Word to be walking, talking, living, breathing examples of what it looks like to reverently live underneath the Word of God by loving it, by studying it, by meditating on it. And David shows us a good uh, motivation, I think, for this. And I'm just going to read Psalm 1 to you uh, as the end of the sermon this morning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for showing us how to live righteous lives. And God, we know that there's a great deal of sin in our past and probably in our future as well. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to cover all of the guilt of that sin. And Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand your word. Help us to follow you all the days of our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.